Hope y'all are doing well this week. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn with us to Hebrews chapter 1. And our plan is to look at a few different texts, obviously, with this topic. Uh, it's hard to find a place in Scripture that does not address this in some form or fashion. And uh, if you are new today, we're, we're, we've just our second Sunday on a new topic of the theme of God's providence, which is just a wonderful topic. The more you think about it, the more you want to think about it and study it to see how rich it is and to see how, uh, how much it applies to our everyday life. Um, I think Jerry and I were talking about how it, this topic takes us to some of the most challenging places theologically, but it also applies so expansively to the smallest moments and biggest moments of life. It's this amazing combination of deep thinking, but also very profound life application. And so, uh, Jerry, could you open us in prayer before we dive in? Yeah, I'd like that. Just what you were saying, uh, I think Piper said, no natural process or event is so insignificant that it lies outside the, pers- um, the persuasive and purposeful providence of God. And man, when you think about that, you would just say that should persuade us and, uh, and be incorporated in every thought that we have, and uh, then I think our, our living would be far, far different. So let's pray to that end. Father, we, uh, are, we come before you, and we really rejoice, Dad, that we can come before your throne of grace uh, with confidence, knowing that you are going to give us the grace and mercy we need. We've seen that um, for the decades we've been on this earth. Uh, we trust uh, that... Um, that will continue, Lord, because you say you, um, you are who you say you are, and you've done what you say you've done, and uh, we are just so grateful that um, all things really do work together for good, um, because um, you love us. We, we've been called according to your purpose, and Lord, we uh, ask today that uh, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers as well. We pray that you'd give us wisdom as ours so much to think about and so much to talk about and so much to enjoy here. Um, and I would pray, Lord, that it would be uh, a great in our, to, to develop a better theological understanding of these difficult but glorious topics, uh, but maybe as much or even more that it would um, impact the way we live this life, that we may live a life in uh, a manner worthy of the gospel. And we're so thankful for your sovereignty and uh, providential hand um, of all that's going on, including now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What, what we've been doing for the first couple of weeks is we are using a classic Christian uh, creed, confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it says very similar things to what the, the London Baptist Confession of 1689 says, and so, uh, but whether more from a Presbyterian or uh, Baptist background, a very similar statement on this topic, and we're going to walk through that a little bit further to kind of get a, a good definition of what providence is, what God's sovereignty over, over history is, backing that up with Scripture. Then, in the coming weeks, Lord willing, we will begin to look at this uh, topic through, uh, we'll begin to look at this through several topics. So, I mean, the topics are wide-ranging, but it deals with everything from uh, birth and death to God's sovereignty over nations and kings. God's sovereignty over, it gets into really interesting stuff, like sovereignty over, what about sin and Satan and demons? What about angels? What about God's sovereignty over the weather? What about God's sovereignty over natural disasters? Sovereignty over all these things. So week by week, we'll take a different topic and we'll look at it. We'll look at whatever we can find in scripture on that particular issue. And it should kind of build as a cumulative case over time. As as you're here week in and week out, I hope that you'll be persuaded more and more to see how all-encompassing God's sovereignty and providence are over 
all things in all the world. And then as we move toward the summer, we'll move and spend an extended time on God's sovereignty in salvation, which I think will be a rich and really good time in God's Word as well. Greg, can you go ahead and read for us the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1, maybe make a comment about God's providence here? Yeah, Hebrews chapter 1, if you'll open there if you have not already. Uh, We're just going to read verses 1 through 4. Uh, The writer says this, he says, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, this is a classic text on you know, Christ, his work, um, how he is the shining forth of the glory of God. You know, we go to Hebrews 1 when we want to show people that the Bible teaches that the Son is truly and fully God, just like the Father. And one of the ways he demonstrates that we find in verse 3 when it says, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. It's not talking about the Father there, that's talking about the Son. Um, and what's significant is the universe is everything. Everything that there is in existence, Jesus upholds by his powerful word. That ties into what we mean by providence, God's purposeful sovereignty, God's governance of all things, his upholding of all things, as we're going to see in the confessions that we look at. Um, You'll see from this text, other texts, you know, the language that these confessions use isn't just something they came up with willy-nilly. These folks were saturated in the Bible when they wrote these things. Um, and so their language clearly, precisely reflects the language of the Bible. Um, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 is a key text for us understanding why does everything continue on? Why do we continue on right now? Why, don't, why is it that our hearts don't stop beating? Why is it that our atoms still hold together? And, and some of you could go a lot more in-depth on that than I could in terms of scientific detail. Why does the universe continue to go on? Because Jesus upholds it by the word of his power. That is a function of God's providence, and it is amazing to think about. And similarly, Colossians 1, mm-hmm. which I think you're referencing there, in him all things consist or hold together. Yeah. It's a similar kind of idea where, uh, like Hebrews said, Jesus is what keeps the world running. Je- Jesus' yeah. word is what keeps the world running. Yeah, can we read that? Because that's just too yeah. good to miss Colossians out. 1. It is so good with that. One sixteen and 17. For by him um, all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible. And again, this is Greg pointed out, this is the Son talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Colossians 1, 1 16 and 17. And uh, the masterpiece on Jesus, Colossians 1. So, so great. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I just think that's so key. And then 17 is what Mark uh, was quoting there. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together which is fascinating and glorious uh, the more you think of it, I think. Well, rulers and authorities encompasses Satan and his demons. They are upheld in their existence by Jesus 
even as they use every moment of their existence to rebel against him. That's so, how pervasive this is. And so far against the idea that God made things and then just let it go. Oh, yeah. And you know, that, actively that, involved. So actively involved and thrillingly so. You know, that just should bring such great comfort and joy. Yeah, and I know we, I mentioned the term deism sometimes, and you probably remember that from some of the, a few of the founding fathers were deists. But deism is the idea, remember, God is like the watchmaker. He creates a watch, he winds it up, and then he just leaves it in the woods, and he walks away, and then the watch just sort of does its thing on its own, and the watchmaker is long gone, not really caring or paying attention. That is not the biblical God. The biblical God is, of course, the creator, but he is intimately involved with everything in his world at all times throughout all of history, God is right there. God does not walk away. He's not an absentee landlord, as one person said. He, he's not, he's not uh, indifferent to what's going on. God is intimately involved with all the details of what's happening in his world. And honestly, it, it, it really does take convincing by Scripture to get to this point. We really do see God in everything. He, he's involved in all things that are going on. And I think Scripture clearly points in that direction. Let, let's jump back. And I know review can be Tiresome, but I, I think this is very important review from last week, and so we're going to reread part of what we looked at last week. By the way, if, uh, there's five extra copies of Piper's Providence book over there. For any household that doesn't have one yet, you can grab one on your way out the door. It's a great book on this topic. So this is back to the Westminster Confession. I'm going to turn almost into you here, Jerry. And uh, let's just reread some of this, because I think this is really, really well said from about, what, 400 years ago or so. Uh, quote, so this is God's eternal decree. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And you see Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things together according to the counsel of his will. Right? That, those are the kinds of verses that we're looking at there. And then uh, look here, yet so, see he, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. In other words, when an individual sins, it is ultimately part of God's sovereign plan, but God is not himself guilty. God himself does not sin or tempt to sin, but God is sovereign over all of history, including the sins of humanity. Yet when the sin happens, it's entirely the fault of the individual, whether a demon or me or you. We bear the full blame for our own personal sin, and nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. This means God is not forcing me to do anything against my will. When I sin, I am a willing participant. I am not being manipulated into sinning. I'm not being, you know, I am the one choosing deliberately of my own choice whenever I sin to sin. It is me. I am blameworthy. God is not doing violence to my will at any moment, uh, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. In other words, God does a lot of things through secondary causes. We'll look at these more in the future, but just to give one obvious example. In Job chapter 1, Job's children all die, right? Job says the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But yet we're told in the story who actually brought about the death of his children? Satan, right? Satan asked permission of God to kill the children of Job. And God said, yes, astonishing, yes. God said, yes. So Satan was the secondary agent. He was the secondary cause. He was the one that went out and did it. But did it happen under God's ordination and under God's decree? Yes, God absolutely permitted it on purpose to happen. And, and here's the crazy thing. Job says, the Lord gave, the Lord took away. Is that bad theology? No, because the very next sentence says, and Job did not sin in what he said. 
So when Job attributed to God the taking away of his children, he was speaking as a good theologian. Satan was the secondary cause, but ultimately, he says God took away. And the, the inspired narrative says Job did not sin in what he said. And at the end of the book of Job, the inspired narrator says, uh, jo- he speaks of all the trouble that the Lord brought against Job. And so we see here again, secondary causes, Satan was a real evil means of what happened. Satan did it, but it was ultimately underneath God's sovereign and good plan. And God had good purposes for what happened. Satan had malicious and evil purposes for what happened. Well, the other, other place in Job too, um, after you know, he loses like all his stuff and um, you know, family and everything, and then his own body is afflicted. And you know, he says to his wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil or disaster or calamity? And then it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And I think it just goes to say to acknowledge God's sovereign hand over whatever comes, that whatsoever comes to pass is good theology. It's saying right things about God. And this might be a good point to, to mention this. When God permits something evil to happen, like he permitted Satan out of evil motives to do something terrible to Job, God permitted Satan to do something evil. When God permits something, gave per, I mean, explicitly, he says, you can do that. And he limits, don't kill Job. He limits, but he, he gives him permission. When God permits something, even if it's evil, God is, of course, unstained by the evil. He's not the one doing it. That's all true. But when God permits something, he always does everything he does with purpose. And God's purpose is always good, no matter what's happening. If Jesus is being crucified, it's the worst evil that ever happened. And that happened under God's plan. I mean, if, if we're going to say that God cannot be sovereign over evil events, we lose the cross because we can no longer say God so loved the world that he gave his son because God just sort of was, I don't know, was he a bystander? I don't know. God planned the death of his son, but it was out of a loving and gracious motive. And so we, we need to keep in mind there, God's purposes are always good, even if the, the purposes of individuals are not good. Okay, let's finish this uh, section here. Uh, the next section, I don't, I don't know if you can read the bottom part here. Although God knows whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. Greg, you addressed that last week. Could you give just a summary real quick of, uh, of God not simply foreseeing future events but ultimately decreeing? Yeah, it goes back to the biblical word for foreknow, which we talked about. Um, you know, it's often used as a synonym for foresight. God just looked into the future in some way, through some mechanism, saw what was going to happen, and then he said, well, that's what I'm decreeing is going to take place, what I know such and such a person is going to do with, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, but the word foreknow, as we, as we looked at, especially in relation, or when it's talking about God's relationship to his people, it's not just knowledge about, it's an intimate knowledge of, like, relational, loving, um, intentional, like Adam knew Eve. Uh, God tells Israel, you of all the nations have I known. Um, it says in First Peter that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Do we dare say that God, wow, he learned he was going to send Jesus when he looked into the... No, he, 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 he knows that intimately, like that's part of his plan, it's part of his choice. And so the word for foreknow in Scripture actually is referring to God like entering into a relationship with someone. Um, and when four is put there, like that's his choice in advance to do that. 
So it's equivalent to election or unconditional election. It's equivalent to, you could even say for loving because God's choice in this way is always a choice that's surrounded by his love, that it's fueled by his love, um, and it only ends in the expression of his love. Um, and so it, it's, it's not simply God looking down some corridor or so by some means and saying, oh, that's what's going to happen, so now I'm going to make what I'm, you know, decide what I'm going to do. No, um, for no means he basically is choosing ahead of time who he's going to love and how he's going to work for them. And otherwise, it would be man-centered. Yeah, otherwise, absolutely. Otherwise, he, would, he would, be. would be looking at what we God do. God would be dependent on us. Yeah. Yeah, and is it, is it in Galatians where Paul says he speaks of salvation? It's amazing. He says, he's talking about people becoming Christians. He says, now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, and then he keeps talking. So Paul can describe becoming a Christian as God knowing you. Huh. Well, I mean, that's an amazing way to talk about conversion. So, so now that you've come to know God, well, actually, more proper, Paul says, to say, now that God knows you. The idea of God's knowledge of you has a covenantal, uh, kind of like Adam, like you mentioned, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth. It's this covenantal love knowing in that kind of way. And when, when God knows us in salvation, it's, it's a sign of his covenantal yeah. affection for us. So let's continue here. Uh, this is specifically on the providence section in the Westminster Confession. Quote, the great crea- uh, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, there's the Hebrews 1.3, uphold direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. That's a tremendous explanation of God's providence. Any thoughts on, on this section here, Jerry? Well, wasn't it Sproul? It might have been Wes Allen that Sproul might have got it from Wes because <laughs> Wes was quoting it, or maybe Sproul got it from Wes, not sure. But there's no maverick molecule. You know, when you listen to that, when you read that, you just say, and that's a, I don't know if it's a completely accurate summary, but there is nothing out there that is not under God's completely, he's governing it all. And, uh, and I think that just brings great comfort. Yeah, you know, Sproul, Sproul you know, probably some of you have heard that. There is no maverick molecule in the universe. That's, I mean, think about that statement for a second. If God is sovereign over every single molecule except one, well, then you're in total control. No, you're not. Could just one thing that's not under God's sovereignty end up becoming the wrench in the engine that wrecks the whole machine? Yes. So if God is not sovereign over all, he's not actually sovereign. Do you see that? If he's sovereign over 99.9999999% of history, that point zero 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 one percent he's not sovereign over could completely wreck his plans. So we either have a God who is God or a God who is not. You either have a God who is Lord or a God who is not. Either a God who is truly sovereign and, and, and providentially sovereign over all of his creation and all of time or a God who is almost sovereign. He's almost providentially in control of all things, but there could be some molecule somewhere that's going to do damage to his overall scheme or plan. God doesn't scheme over his plan. And there's where we get, it'll be where we feast on it this summer and those Romans 9 passages that we um, just move past quickly there, uh, including election. You know, because otherwise, again, it would be, because sometimes they'll almost get the idea that God really runs everything else, but boy, it's up to us if we're going to come to love and know Christ. And um, so that's where we would believe that wouldn't really be complete sovereignty at that point. 
Can we read the Spurgeon quote that you have? It seems yes. to fit with I've got it up what here you somewhere. quoted from uh, Sproul, Give me just a or R.C. Sproul. You want to read it, Greg? Yeah. Um, th- this is so great. You think the Maverick Molecule quote, like, you know, and here's Spurgeon talking about the same kind of thing. He says, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. He who believes in God must believe this truth. There is no standing point between this and atheism. There is no halfway between an almighty God who works all things according to the good pleasure of his will and no God at all. I mean, you... You guys might have seen on um, social media, it's like the, the zoom in thing where it like starts like looking at like this, this person like laying on their back on the ground um, and then it like starts zooming out and it like keeps going and like then you see the earth and you like see the solar system and you like see, you know, out to the galaxy and then you start seeing all kinds of galaxies and it's like you get this like massive view of the whole universe and then it zooms back in and goes like down to the microscopic cellular level Um, This is one of those things, the more I've thought about it, it has absolutely blown me away uh, when it comes to God. We can only see reality really from one perspective at one time. With like the help of a telescope or a microscope, you know, we, we look in and we see it from a different perspective. God perceives and upholds all of reality at every conceivable level at the same time. And he's never confused. He's never overwhelmed. Um, It's never too much for him to handle. So he sees the entire universe at once, and he is intimately acquainted with every molecule that is moving at the same time. Um, the, the, The vastness of God's mind in that sense should just make us put our hands over our mouths in wonder and awe and just bless him because that is so far outside of anything we will ever know or experience. Like, we can't even begin to come close to that. Like, not with 10,000 years of development could we even begin to scratch the surface of that kind of comprehension. So we think about the particle of dust in this. I mean, you think about that. God is not just aware, but he has ordained the movement. When you're sitting there this summer and you're relaxing and reading a book and you see the sunbeam coming in and you see the dust floating, every single one of those is fulfilling God's ordaining purpose. That's, there's no words for that. Let me, let me say a word about that. That's, that's really a great point. I, I do think that for all the controversy that this doctrine can create in our mind with all the unanswered questions and what, what about this, what about that, and we're going to talk all about those things. You know, we, we can only go so far, but we'll talk about those in coming weeks. I will say this. I am convinced that virtually every Christian actually believes these doctrines, even when they say they don't, as soon as they get on their knees to pray. 
Here, here's what I find. I find that a Christian will debate with me and say, I, I had a, a you know, Bible college, I've told this story, a good friend of mine, he was 10 years older than me, he was 32 at the time, and he, was a, he loves the Lord. He since has come to embrace these doctrines, but at the time he did not believe it. I can remember at the Tacoa Falls parking lot out near the waterfall, he and I were having a, a friendly debate back and forth on this very topic, and he was arguing with all his heart against the idea of God being sovereign over his salvation. And yet, we would get together and we would pray in his apartment. And you know how, we, you know how you'd pray? You know how, you know how all Christians pray. You know what we pray? We say, God, save my son. God, save my uncle. God, open the eyes of the hearts of th this person that I care about. God, I pray for these people in India who don't even have access to the gospel. Bring the gospel to them and persuade them of the truth and help them to receive you with open arms. God, please, please, please uh, allow this, well, my son to be like a prodigal waking up in the pigsty and come home. You understand that on our knees, we're much better theologians sometimes than when we're writing our textbooks on theology. We, when we get down on our knees, we know God's in control. And I'll give you an example. Even in common grace, even a Romans 1 sort of sense, let me mention Elon Musk, okay? You did not expect Elon Musk right now to be quoted. Elon Musk is not a Christian. If you were wondering, he's not even close to a Christian. I would love for him to be a Christian. He's not a Christian, okay? Hey, he's barely a theist. But here, here's something I heard. He, uh, when one of his SpaceX rockets was taken off last year with the two astronauts like Bill and Bob or something, it was hilarious. The astronaut names were, were cracking me up. And they were about to take off, okay? And these guys, I mean, if this thing fails, those guys are going to die and it's going to massively discredit his whole massive multi-billion dollar organization. So Elon Musk said in an interview, and you may have seen this, not a Christian at all. He said, I got down in my room on my knees and I prayed to God now, this is not a Christian prayer, but it struck me that common grace, general revelation, he knew something. He said, God, basically, I haven't prayed to you in a long time, but I want to I ask you, please, please, please uh, allow this to be successful and allow these astronauts to survive and allow this to go well. And God, in his sheer mercy, allowed it to go well. The, the astronauts returned to earth safely. But here's my point. Even a guy like Elon Musk, who's barely a theist, knows that God is in control of every bit of that rocket as it takes off. He knows that if one tiny piece of that rocket malfunctions like the Columbia disaster or whatever you might want to look at, that rocket is going to explode in the air and the astronauts will die. So even he, without even believing in scripture, knows enough from general revelation to know if God is God, he's in control of every molecule in that rocket and he's going to completely be in control of whether that's a successful take, take off and landing or not. And so he prayed. So my goodness, we don't want Elon Musk to have better theology than we do. We, 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 we want to know, yes, that is absolutely true, that God is in control of every molecule. And, and we know when we are on our knees praying, we we know that that is true. We, we, we pray as though that were true. I think we also believe, and I think, again, almost all believers would say, Scripture teaches it. The harder part is not whether Scripture teaches it or not. The harder part is that we just don't understand it. So we have to believe what we don't understand once again. And, uh, and that's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for all of us. But uh, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth. And so... I think we can embrace that and enjoy that as long as we don't have to um, understand all that we truly believe. We don't understand the Trinity. We don't understand God being fully man, fully God, Jesus. And so there's a lot of things we don't understand that we believe, and this needs to be in that category, I think. It's similar to the doctrine of Scripture, where we believe Scripture was written by people. People who sinned, I mean, not when they wrote Scripture, but they, I mean, Peter sinned. We see him sin in the Bible, and he wrote two books of the Bible. So we, we, even though these people were fallible and sinful, in the moment that they put pen to paper as they wrote or had an, a, a scribe write for them the words, those very words were truly coming out of John's personality and had his vocabulary, or they came from Paul and his early training and his vocabulary and his way of thinking. Whoever it was, the personality of the author bears its marks in the letters that the authors wrote. John does not write like Paul. 
I mean, have you read the Gospel of John and read Romans? They are not written the same way, but they are equally God's very words, and they are equally inspired by God. So, I mean, I cannot explain that. How is it John uh, writing the book of Revelation, how is what he wrote down both John's words bearing his personality, and at the same time, they are absolutely entirely God's words and inspired entirely by God at the same time. They are truly the words of man, but also truly the words of God. And again, how to fit those things together, we can't fully do, but we have to believe both. We have to believe that those human beings wrote the books and that God guided every word to get exactly what God wanted said. said. Well, it doesn't cause a problem for God. No. Um, I mean, you know, I think it was uh, Spurgeon was asked and something like this, you know, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and like human freedom? He's like, I don't try to rec- reconcile friends. And what he, what he means is, if God reveals both in Scripture, God's absolute sovereignty and our, like, our responsibility and freedom, then in God's mind, it makes sense. It might not to us, but it does to him. Um, and we have to understand that God, again, he understands things and comprehends things at a level and to an extent that we never will. And like, we, we can either chafe against that, we can, we can rebel against that, um, and, and, and almost grow to hate God for that, or we can humbly submit and find a place of rest and peace and joy in knowing that he is God and I'm not, and I can trust him. I can trust him fully with everything, especially the things that don't make sense to me that I can't piece together the way I'd want to. Can we turn real quick to the book of Daniel? Daniel comes after Ezekiel in your Old Testament there. Daniel chapter 2, and I want to look at Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter This is when God reveals, uh, or yeah, God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream here. And uh, Greg, could you read for us verses 19 to 23? Yeah. It says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give you thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter." So you see here in verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. The rulers in this world, many of them very flawed, <laughs> to say it nicely, God removes kings. God is the one that sets up kings. Look at chapter 4. So it's not our when we vote, ultimately. Yeah. Right. It, it, and that, I don't say that lightly. Right. It, let, me, let me make a point on that. So, like, just take with, with us with voting, and I'm not going to tell you, uh, I'm not going to get into that too far. I'll just say with us with voting, we have real responsibility when we vote. We must think through the issues. We must investigate. We must come to biblically sound conclusions. We must uh, follow our conscience and do what we believe is truly right, and we have a responsibility there. I think, it's, I think it's a great thing that we can vote. At the same time, 
when you punch your ballot box in or you, you know, you print it and whatever you did and you, you send it in, you're always wondering, is this really, is this, where's this going? I hope this goes to the right place. But you send your, your, your vote in when you walk away from the ballot box uh, and maybe you felt this way. You did your responsibility. Now you say, Lord, this is in your hands. Please let your will be done. And, and um, at the end of the day, God's will is always, go- his, his sovereign will will always be done, but that does not eliminate my personal responsibility, one iota, not a bit. We are, we are, we are totally responsible. So chapter four, can you read again, Greg? Can you read verses uh, one through three? One through three, yeah. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And skipping to the end of the chapter, remember after he loses his mind, because he was taking pride in his works, he, his, his reason is restored to him. And Greg, he read 34 through 35. Yeah. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, I, I take it clearly in this text that what he is saying here is God's very word. In other words, he is speaking truthfully in this moment. His reason was restored, and he speaks truly in this moment. And look, just 35. Look at this. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven. That does not sound like God looks into the future to see what people are going to do and then chooses whatever they're going to choose. In other words, you see what I'm saying? A popular notion is that God looks into the future to see what choices we're going to make, and then God ordains after the fact, essentially, what we're going to do already. But does that sound like what this is saying? No, because then what people do would be accounted as a lot. Look at verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. So the ultimate will determining history is not my will. I'm accounted as nothing in this verse. It's his will. He does according to his will in the host of heaven. Thoughts on that? That's just great news. We don't want it to be determined on us. That would be devastating and just terrifying. So, I mean, this is all of this. I hope all of this is just really encouraging, you know, that, that we come to hold on to it, believe it. Why do we believe it? We believe it because it's true. And then it just impacts everything and uh, floods us with joy all day long. Um. In verse 35, two things. He says, none can stay his hand, meaning no one can stop God. Like, and say, okay, wait, 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 you need to stop this. Um, you need to pause. And God's, oh, yeah, I should listen to you. I, I, I can't do this right now. No one can say that to God. And the last statement, or say to him, what have you done? We are going to go, and we've talked about this, we are going to go through some very difficult times in our lives. We all will in various ways. Agonizingly painful, outside and inside. Um, These circumstances will push us to our breaking point and beyond. Okay? In those moments, we don't want 
to cry from our heart at God as though he did something wrong in bringing it about and that he has to account, give an account to us. So when he says, none can say to him, what have you done? It's not saying we can't say the words. It's saying none can legitimately charge him with wrong. As though, wait, wait, God, what did you do with here? Explain yourself to me. We can never do that legitimately. We might think we can. If we ever find ourselves in that spot, we need to get afraid really quick and we need to say, God, humble my heart because I am daring to challenge you. And Job comes close later yes, in the story. Yes, he does. He, he does. Thinking. Job comes very close. And don't you think that'd be a great thing? If you get a chance, read the last five chapters of Job. Wow, so good. 38 to 42 this week. And it is a, it, it is perfect on what you're saying right there, Greg, on uh, Job getting close to that. And uh, God says, brace yourself like a man. Yeah, Job's problem, he, nev- <laughs> he never spoke wrong of God. He went astray when he demanded that God explain himself. And God's like, if, if you can do all these things I can do, then I'll answer you. And the, the outcome is obviously we can't do anything that God can do that he mentions to Job. And so we have no place to question him or demand anything of him. And Job comes up with a great, no plan of yours can be thwarted. Job mm-hmm. comes up with the right conclusion once yep. he thinks through it and, and God lectures him. That's true. One interesting, one interesting thing to ask sometimes when you think about this is, what are the alternative possibilities? So let me just talk real quick to the secular worldview for a second. We're just immersed in it. It's everywhere you look. It's the secular, godless, sort of atheistic perspective on the world. Does that have a better answer for the problem of suffering? Let's think about it for a second. Here is the secular reason for suffering. You ready? There is no purpose for your life, ultimately. You can try to come up with your own, but it's just an illusion. It's subjective. It's just made up. In terms of objective purpose, you have none. In terms of intelligent design, you were not intelligently designed. You are a complete accident. You are a cosmic mistake. You just happen to have happened, and one day you'll be gone and forgotten. All the pain in your life is simply what's happening. It's just, it's just what happens. It has no purpose. It has no explanation. It has no reason. It has no good purpose in your life. It's just, hap- just whatever happens, happens. If the God of the Bible exists, and of course he does, then that means the most challenging and difficult parts of our lives are loaded with purpose for our good. Think about the, the alternative. One is like Richard Dawkins famously said, you know, he's, he's, still, he's still going, he's probably eight, around 80 or so, and he's, he's uh, written a lot of books from the atheist perspective as a biologist. But Richard Dawkins says in his book, River Out of Eden, he says, the universe has exactly the properties we would expect to find if there was at bottom no good, no evil, uh, no justice, nothing but pitiless indifference. And then he said, some people are going to get lucky and some people are going to get hurt and you won't find any rhyme or reason for it nor any justice. Those are his actual words. So from the atheist perspective, your suffering is pointless and it has no ultimate good in your life. It just, it just, it is, you, some people get lucky and some people don't. Whereas from the biblical perspective, the most difficult times of life have perhaps the most meaning. I mean, they're the times where God is most at work shaping us into the image of his son, helping us to stop loving the world as much as we did, start loving heavenly realities more than we ever did. God is always at work for our good. The only alternative is, again, a God who's sort of standing back watching from a distance. 
in which he's going, oh, I, you know, I wish that hadn't happened and I'll try to kind of clean up the spilled milk, but I've got no real plan for this. I'm just going to try to make the best of bad things, but I don't really have a plan for the bad things. I'm just sort of, I'm watching them happen and then trying to make them the best that I can. But no, no, it is far better than that. God has a plan. Like Shakespeare, and like you mentioned, Shakespeare in his plays, every good and bad moment in the play is being worked by a master writer for ultimate good ends. And God is like a, you know, the ultimate tapestry. You've heard of like a quilt maker, to switch analogies. On the back of a quilt, it looks ugly. Everything's out of order. It looks like chaos. But when you flip the quilt over, you see the beautiful design of the artist. Similarly, our lives often look like a lot of confusing parts that don't quite fit together. And we can't quite see what God is up to. But we know that the brilliant, sovereign artist is at work and that he is designing something glorious for our good and his glory. And if we could flip it around and see one day in eternity all that God was up to, we will be astonished by how the, the, the dark and bright colors all work together for God's ultimate glory and for the good of his people. So Amen. good, and it's, it's great news yeah. to, to, to know that's true. J Jerry, let me just, I, I know we talk about your situation uh, a good bit recently, we talked about it, but I, I want to ask you a quick question about that. So when, when you're going through, let's just talk about more of the, the, the everyday trials of life, given diabetes, paralysis, all those things, just the, the week in, week out, normal stuff, the, the, the normal trials. I know you're, you're going to say that you don't do this well and that you fail at it, and we all fail at it, but how do you deal with just the, the Monday morning, the van door is not working, or, you know, whatever it might be, you've, whatever's going on. How do, you, how do you deal with those when you're caught off guard, you're, you're, you're tempted to complain or to doubt God, and then trying to work towards trusting Him? What does it look like on a Monday morning when the van door is not opening? I need to just watch what you and Greg say <laughs> at these right here, because I think that's the convicting part, is it's so much fun to be up here talking about it but then, when we get in everyday life, um, it, it, it doesn't always compute. And all of a sudden, I go to a um, hundred other wrong ways of thinking. And, uh, and so, I, I really believe it's, we have to live by faith and not by sight. Things look like they're out of control, but they're not. And, uh, and then, I, that's what I'm hoping that this series, that we all hope this series does for each of us. That the more we believe it, the more we trust it and hold on to it, the less those daily, the, the daily grind will, will get us. Instead, we will trust God when things uh, look like they're going haywire because they're really not. And, uh, and I, oftentimes I just have to call Papa. And he reminds me of the all things, that all things are working together for good. They truly are because God says they are. And then that's, that's much easier to, to know there's an ultimate uh, good end to all of this, which, again, just isn't to make us um, happy and, and uh, um, comfortable, but to make us more like Jesus. So I think that's the challenging part. Do we want to be more like Jesus more than I want to be comfortable? I know the biblical answer to that is yes. My everyday answer is sometimes maybe. Depends, you know, and that's what needs to start shifting toward always being, yes, I want to be like Christ. That's what he's doing. I have to enjoy that process. Mm -hmm. Can we read, is it um, point four that you, you sent us um, on Providence from the Westminster Confession? Yes. Because I think it, it summarizes well some of what we've been saying. 
Do you have it in front of you? Yeah, I do have it in front of me. I'm, Here we I'm, go. I'll go ahead and oh, you got it. Okay, y'all, li- listen to this because I think it, it sums up well um, what we're trying to say from Scripture. It says, The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, but such as hath joined with, a, joined with it a most, power, a most wise and powerful bounding, otherwise ordering and governing of them in a manifold dispensation to his own holy ends, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceedeth only uh, from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin, um, and then, is it number seven, um, in light of that, the last one. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, and this is where it's such good news for us, y'all. Uh, after a most special manner, it taketh care of his church and disposeth, disposeth all things to the good thereof. And I think what that gets at is what we've been trying to say is that everything that comes to pass for the believer has nothing but a good, loving intention from God for us. Everything, whether every, every joy, every sorrow, every blessing, every trial, every pleasure, every pain, none of it comes to us apart from God's good purpose. Was it uh, Ron Brown said at the retreat, like nothing comes to us except what God purposefully signs off on. Like, it will not come to us unless he signs off on it saying, yes, this is good for my people. And so it doesn't mean that sin is somehow not sin, but it does mean even through sinful things, through difficult things, God has a good, loving purpose. And we have to preach that to ourselves, like, not just now, like, we have to remind ourselves of that, like, constantly, because we are so prone to want to believe otherwise. All right, we are going to wrap up uh, here just for next week, so you know where we're going. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to deal with this issue. What is the, and we, you've already heard a little bit of this. What is the, the goal of God's providence? Okay, the goal of God's providence is his own glory, and we're going to talk about how God seeking his own glory is good for us. Because oftentimes that sounds like God's being egotistical, like he's doing everything for his own glory. And that sounds, people say that's egotistical, but it's not, it's actually what righteousness means, and it's also what is best for all of us, his creatures. So with that, Greg, can you close us in prayer? Our great God, we stand uh, humbly before you. God, you are God. You are great. You are all-powerful, all-wise. You are sovereign, Lord. God, we are none of these things. Um, And so, Lord, we just confess that, Lord, you alone are worthy And Lord, we are thankful that you are in your goodness, God, always working for our good. In your love, you always are working for our good. Um, Lord, not just for our earthly comfort, but for our eternal joy, um, our eternal comfort. God, which will far exceed and outweigh any comfort that we can ever have on this planet, this side of the return of Jesus. And so, Lord, help us in our hearts to rest in your sovereignty and in your providential care. God, that you are guiding and governing every aspect of our lives. Lord, we need to choose 
uh, and make the best decisions we can make based on what we know from your word and with the counsel of others. But God, help us submit ourselves to the reality that you are the one who ultimately is guiding all things. Um, And Lord, that is such good news for us uh, because again, nothing comes into our lives, whether good or bad, apart from your intentional purpose, Lord. And that is so comforting to know. Lord, help us be changed by that truth this week um, with whatever may come. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.